Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Uh, Exodus 20 will be our text this Lord's Day as we uh, look there specifically at verse 17 and at the 10th commandment. And uh, if you've been with us, you know that we've been looking at each of these commandments and learning from them about the character of God, about the heart of man, and also about how we see the gospel of Christ transform these commandments. And so today, uh, we get to look at this 10th commandment. Today, we're also going to be coming to the Lord's table together. And so the invitation is there for anyone here who is a professing follower of Jesus Christ, uh, for you to join us at the Lord's table. And we'll be having that at the close of our sermon today as our time of response. Now, we're looking at Exodus 20:17, but I want to read this as I have the other commandments in the context of how it was given. So we're going to read verses Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. Uh, remembering the setting here, uh, God has freed his people from their slavery and captivity in Egypt. He is leading them towards the land of promise, and he's gathered them at the foot of Mount Sinai. And it's there that he gives them his ten words, uh, this Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. So out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, if you would stand together, as I read for us Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your, female, your male servant or your female servant, your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. If you would pray with me. Father, we pray this Lord's Day in the name of Jesus that you might teach us through your word. Lord, that you would help us to repent and to have faith to be people of the word and to flee from being people of the world. The world desperately needs the gospel. We desperately need the gospel today. So Father, would you help us through the power of your Holy Spirit to better understand and respond to your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. 
you've watched the news in recent weeks and days, you know that there are many parts of the world in turmoil. It seems that we are on the brink of possibilities, the possibilities of battles with other nations, and then we see in our own nation battles on our streets. We see the need in our world desperately for the gospel, and yet we see a world that has rejected the gospel. As we look to these Ten Commandments and learn how we are to apply them to our life, we also live amongst a world that has run and fled from the Ten Commandments. And in fact, you could say that they've twisted and lived the exact opposite of how God's called us to live. And Martin Luther said it this way, The world is nothing but a reversed decalogue, or the Ten Commandments backwards. And so as you think through what we've talked about in the Ten Commandments, you can really see how the world is, is the exact opposite of these things. The world is filled with false religions and false gods. We see idolatry everywhere. And we live in a world where God's name is constantly taken in vain. The Lord's Day is not revered. It's treated like just any other day. Parents are not honored or respected. And then you turn on the news, you pick up the newspaper, and the headlines are filled with murders, affairs, theft, and lies. And then we come to this tenth commandment, this commandment where the Word tells us what we should not covet, and yet we live in a world that tells us that we very much should covet. We should desire things. In fact, we are surrounded constantly and bombarded with advertisements telling us that we should be discontent with the things that we have. That we should desire new things, bigger things, and better things. And so we run the temptation every day of being lured into coveting, to desiring something more than what we have. Now, this was a, a beautiful weekend, so perhaps... Uh, you spent this weekend uh, cleaning up your vehicle and perhaps as you were washing your car, your truck, or your van, and maybe while you were doing that, you were thinking, you know, this is a, this is a pretty good vehicle. It's paid for. It runs okay. I'm content with this. I'm glad to have this. And then you pull out of your driveway and go to town and there at the intersection you start looking around and you see something newer something cleaner, something sharper, something brighter, something more efficient, something with better gas mileage, something that you feel would be better suited to meet your needs. And maybe you're sitting there at a restaurant, you look at the, the car dealership across the way, maybe you're driving in your car and the ads start coming on with all the deals, maybe you're sitting there in your chair and you turn on the TV and someone there tells you, you deserve this. You have worked hard for this. You need to treat yourself. You need to want this. It might not be a car. Maybe it's clothes. Maybe it's shoes. Maybe it's a new cell phone, a new gadget, a new computer, a new television. There's always something being thrown at us, some advertisement, some voice in our culture saying that we need something better, something quicker, something more efficient, something more reliable. Those same voices tell us we need these things. We deserve these things. And we should desire these things. 
And so the question that faces us is, is that wrong? Is it wrong to want something better? Is it wrong to want something bigger? Well, that's a question we're going to look at, but I want to look at it in the context of these three questions we've been asking each week. Uh, with each of these commandments, we've asked the questions, uh, what does this teach us about the character of God? What does this teach us about the heart of man? And how does the gospel transform this commandment? And I hope as we look to these three questions that those other questions will be answered along the way. And so we begin, as we have with each commandment, at looking at what does this commandment teach us about the character of God. And point one there in your outlines, this. It reminds us that God created us to desire Him above all things. God created us to desire Him above all things. And when we read there in Exodus 20, verse 17, you shall not covet. That, that word for covet is a word for desire. And so we can walk away from that thinking, well, well, we shouldn't really desire things. And yet what we find is God has created us to desire things. See, there's many false religions in the world that teach us that the key to happiness is to rid yourself of desire. Buddhism, for example, teaches us that all suffering, all wickedness, all pain and evil in this world, it is a result of desire. And so if we can empty ourselves out of all desire for all things, then we will finally be at peace. The problem fundamentally with that is that God has put within us desire. And He's put that in us for a reason. He desires that we desire Him above all things. That we take pleasure in Him. And so He tells us in this 10th commandment that we're not to desire or take pleasure in that which is not ours. In our neighbor's things. In our neighbor's family. And He tells us that we shouldn't replace a right desire that He's placed within our hearts with a wrong desire. And so the 10th commandment is not a prohibition against desire. It's a prohibition against desiring the wrong things. And so before we look at the wrong things, we need to be reminded of what is the right thing? What is it that you and I as believers in Christ, what is it that we should desire? And very simply, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the very first question in that, for those of you familiar with it, it summarizes this very well. Question one, what is the chief end of man? The answer Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And that's what the Scripture teaches us, is that God has created us innately in a way that we should desire Him and seek to glorify Him. And the psalmist says it this way in Psalm 42, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for You, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God goes on in Psalm 73 to say this, whom, I have, whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. And so the psalmist says, when, when faced with the reality of God, that there's nothing else we should desire greater than Him. He's put that within our heart. It's in His very character. He created us to desire Him above all things. To rejoice in Him. Paul says it this way in Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Pastor and writer John Piper says it this way. God is most glorified 
in you when you're most satisfied in Him. See, God has created us to find true contentment in Him and in Him alone. But we see how sin taints this and twists this. And we see it, as we have with each of these commandments, by looking back to Genesis. And we see there in Genesis 1 again, God creates all things. In Genesis 2 and 3, we see that picture of how God creates man and He gives man everything. He places him in this garden. Now remember, we see in the Scripture, God owns all of this. And he didn't sign a deed over to Adam and Eve in the garden, but what he did was he gave them responsibility over it. And so he said, this is all mine, and it's here for you to enjoy, and you can eat the fruit of any tree here, but, but God withholds something. And God says, this tree over here, this tree that is mine, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for good reason, God said, you may not eat of it. And yet we see that that desire, that coveting enter into Adam and Eve's heart. And one commentator said it this way, what does it mean to covet? To covet is to crave, to yearn for, to hanker after something that belongs to someone else. We covet whenever we set our hearts on anything that is not rightfully ours. And so that's exactly what we see take place in the garden here. Adam and Eve looked to that tree, that tree that is the Lord's, that tree that the Lord says you may not eat of it, and that's the very fruit that they desire. And we see the same thing in our own lives today. It seems that the thing that we're told we can't have is the very thing we long for. I watched a number of years ago, perhaps you've seen something like this, it was one of the evening news programs they did, an experiment with children. When they put them there in a playroom, they put all the latest toys and technology in this room, and they told the children, you can play with anything in this room. Anything that you want, you play with it. This is all here for you. But, but then they took just a very basic toy. Nothing that you would think a child would gravitate towards. They took that very basic toy, and they said, but, but you can't play with this one. Now, this one you, you don't touch. They didn't explain why. They just said, don't touch this. And they sat it over on a table. And they went through the instructions with them. Play with anything. Can't touch this one. And then they left the room. Of course, they were on camera here. And, and you can probably guess what the kids did. And some of them, it was rather humorous. They kind of walked around the table a few times and looked around. And one of them just kind of touched it and then stepped back and... And one by one, most of the children picked up that toy and just sat there and played with it. And friends, we're the same way. And we see this all the way back in the garden. Adam and Eve could have the fruit of any tree. God has said you can have these things, but He withheld this one from them for good reason. And yet, what was it that they desired? They desired that which was God's and was not given to them. We see this in Genesis 3.6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, desired, she took its fruit and ate. 
And she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they immediately, then the scripture tells us, began to try to hide their sin. And friends, that's what we've been doing ever since. We've been reaching for those things that we're told we cannot have. We've been desiring. We've been coveting that which is not ours. We've lacked contentment in what we have. And we've yearned for that which we do not have. All along the while, the world tells us we deserve those things bigger and better. And so we see in this desire that's within us how it leads us into sin. And that brings us to the next question then. What does this commandment teach us about the heart of man? Point two there in your notes. It reminds us, it teaches us that our hearts lead us to desire the wrong things. Our hearts lead us to desire the wrong things. See, the problem isn't that we have a desire, it's that we desire the wrong thing. And so God points out to the people here at Mount Sinai, you shall not covet, you shall not desire, and he starts with your neighbor's house. I think that's an interesting place for the Lord to start here. It certainly sent me thinking through some things. As I thought about coveting a home, a house, I started thinking about Sandy and I and how we started out. Perhaps some of you started out this way. We first place we lived uh, on our own was a was a one room apartment, not a one bedroom apartment, a one room apartment. Everything was right in there together, and uh, we had just gotten married. We didn't have really any furniture, and so she had a great aunt who gave us two twin beds, and we decided not to live like a 1950s television show. So we we pushed the beds together. Uh, I took duct duct tape and I duct taped the two twin beds. And we didn't have any sheets for our makeshift uh, bed there. It was about a king size. So, And the area we lived in, there was a, an outlet. And we went and bought, uh, I don't know if you remember this, honey, but the ugliest uh, bedding you could ever imagine. I think we paid $4 for it. So you know it was ugly. Put that on there. Our, our dressers, our furniture in the room were cardboard boxes that our stuff was in. And then, this was my favorite, uh, we didn't have anything hanging on the walls. Uh, the local library at that time, you could actually check out pictures to hang on your wall. And so you could have them for two months at a time. Now, I, I love my wife, but, but we did have a disagreement. I always wanted the picture of the dogs playing poker. But I never got to put that picture on our little one-room apartment wall. I remember the first night we slept in that apartment, we literally took newspaper and stuck it into bags, and I tried to make a pillow out of those things. I remember how excited we were when we bought our first couch. Things were simple. I spent two days this week mowing a lawn that's just going to grow back. I spent the day yesterday pulling weeds in the same spot where I pulled weeds three weeks ago. We have moved up from a one-room apartment, and things aren't so simple anymore. And along the way, and perhaps you've seen this happen for you, that there becomes this blurred line between the things we need and the things we desire. 
The, the things we want to have because we want to have them and the things we, we feel a need to have because we need to have them. And if we're not careful, there's a slippery slope here that leads us towards coveting what other people have. That leads us towards looking around and saying, well, what, wouldn't that be nice? Well, I wish I had that. Well, well, how come they get that and I don't? I read a very helpful article along these lines. It actually was written 20 years ago, but it's still very applicable today. It was by a pastor named Pastor Mark Buchanan. The title of it was The Cult of the Next Thing. Now, I want to read just a part of this article to you this morning. He said this, I belong to the cult of the next thing. It's dangerously easy to get enlisted. It happens by default, not by choosing the cult, but by failing to resist it. The cult of the next thing is consumerism cast in religious terms. It has its own litany of sacred words. More. You deserve it. New. Faster. Cleaner. Brighter. It has its own deep-rooted liturgy. Charge it. Instant credit. No down payment. Deferred payment. No interest for three months. It has its own preachers, evangelists, prophets, and apostles. Admin pitchmen, and celebrity sponsors. It has, of course, its own shrines, chapels, temples, and meccas, malls, superstores, club warehouses. And it has its own sacraments, credit and debit cards. And it has its own ecstatic experience, the spending spree. The cult of the next thing, central message proclaims, crave and spend for the kingdom of stuff is here. If ever there was a cult that gave us stones when we asked for bread, this is it. Maybe the worst irony of the cult of the next thing is this. It trains us not to value things too much, but to value them too little. It teaches us not to cherish and enjoy anything. Otherwise, we might be content and not long for the next thing. Friends, does that resonate with you at all? Perhaps you find that you too have slipped into the cult of the next thing. That constant desire for something more and something better and nicer. I don't think that the Scripture says inherently that we all need to be paupers, that it's bad for Christians to have nice things, but we need to be careful. There's a slippery slope here. And we need to be watchful. Because to covet is a dangerous thing. And to covet, the Scripture says, might actually cost you your soul. Paul writes this in Ephesians 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Jesus said it very clearly. He said, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, Jesus says. 1 Timothy chapter 6, 
But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I find it interesting that of all these commandments, all the things that the Scripture warns us about, it is this love of money that the Scripture is so explicit about might lead us away from the faith. It might cost us our very soul. Friends, this is the danger of the cult of the next thing. The danger of being a lover of money and someone who desires things. And I think it's something that most of us in this room can identify with on some level. And so the question for us then is, what do we do about it? And the answer is really the answer for all these commandments. We turn to Christ. And we see how He transforms this commandment. And so how does He do that? Well, point three there in your notes. And we find that in Christ we can flee covetousness and we can find contentment. You see, Jesus in the Gospel calls us to find our contentment in Him. To repent and flee from sin and to trust in Christ, to believe in Christ. And when we do that, to find our contentment in Christ. The Gospel calls us away from the love of stuff, the love of things, the empty pursuit that the world tries to sell us on constantly. That contentment, happiness, joy, satisfaction will be found in that next purchase. And we all know it's a lie, don't we? And yet we find ourselves running towards that lie. And you think about, here we are in August. I went into a store two weeks ago. They already had all their Christmas stuff out. And we've got kids already talking about what they want for Christmas. We, we look towards holidays, especially birthdays and Christmas and times when we're going to get gifts. And we, we look towards, oh, th- this is what I want. I can't wait to get this. And then there's that excitement and it culminates in that day when the, the gift is opened. And we all know what happens, don't we? We're doing good if it's still around when the churchyard sale comes around the next year. Well, what happens? It gets broken or, or just really often gets unwanted because that cult of the next thing, it, it leads us to want something bigger, something better, to be discontent with that which we have. We thought this would make us happy and now we're not happy, so maybe the next thing, the next person, the next relationship, maybe that's where I'll find joy. And they leave us lacking and so the gospel calls us to to flee from that and and to run to christ and it's there where jesus says we will find true joy and true contentment and that's the point of the passage that pastor nick shared during our offering this morning that familiar parable of the rich fool that this man who comes to jesus there in luke 12 and And we don't know the full story. We don't know all the details when he's demanding his inheritance. We don't know the dynamic of that. But the way Jesus responds would indicate to us that this man is greedy. That he is desiring in a sinful way. He he wants stuff. 
And so how does Jesus graciously respond to him? He tells him a story to warn him about the dangers of wanting stuff. And he tells him this parable about a rich man who, who has so much. And yet his value in life, his pride in life, is his stuff. The Scripture says, Jesus tells him this parable, he, he's laying up treasure for himself. Money is his God. And it cost him everything. And so Jesus in that parable is telling this man who comes to him, listen, don't treasure stuff. Treasure God. Treasure Christ. But don't treasure your stuff. Because friends, stuff makes a poor God. That's why Jesus goes on in Luke 12, right after He tells that parable, to tell His disciples, listen, this is the very reason you don't need to be anxious. (laughs) You don't need to be worried. You don't need to be worried about building bigger barns and all this stuff because you've turned from that and you've trusted in Me. Therefore, you need not be anxious because you can be content. And friends, that wasn't just an offer for first century believers and these disciples. That's an offer for us today. Jesus calls us to find our contentment in Him and Him alone. And to do this, we need to be honest with ourselves today. Do you find contentment in Christ and Christ alone? Or do you look towards the next thing to make you content? I would imagine most of us aren't sitting here this morning thinking, you know, I can't wait to go home and kick my feet up on that ottoman made out of $100 bills and count all my gold in my room like, And I'm going to have to build a bigger barn to store all this money in. Maybe a couple, I don't know. but, But the danger for us is the same. When we think we just need a little bit more. If I could just get a little bit more, then things would be okay. And many of you know the name Norman Rockefeller. He lived a number of years ago. He was a millionaire in his day, but in today's economy, he would be one of the richest people in the world. And he was asked once by a reporter, how much money does it take to be happy? (laughs) Here was a man wealthier than almost any in his day. And someone asked him, listen, at what point, how, how much money do you need? How much money does it take to be happy? And Rockefeller's response was just a little bit more. But friends, the reality is, the problem is, a little bit more is never enough. A little bit more will never make us content. And so the Gospel calls us to to flee from this mindset and to trust in Christ and to find our contentment in Him. So whether we are rich or we are poor, our contentment is not in our circumstance or our bank account. Our contentment's in Christ. And Christ promises what money can never promise. And we read it in Hebrews 13.5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And we can have full confidence in the Gospel and in the cross. We cannot have confidence in the things of this world. And that's ultimately where the Tenth Commandment takes us. Where does our hope lie today? Where does our trust lie? Where does our 
desire lie. And Christ calls us to repent of the wrong desires we have and to replace them with the correct desires. And that desire is a desire for Christ. A desire for the glory of God. A desire not for the things of this world, but the things of the world to come. A desire for a new heaven and a new earth. A desire when there's no more pain and no more suffering and no more cancers and no more death and no more sickness. A desire for that which God has promised eternally for those who will trust in Him. Friends, it's time we open up our eyes and see that this world around us is filled with empty promises and false hope. And the only place a Christian can place their full hope and trust is in Christ and in Christ alone. And here's the beauty of it. You bring nothing to that equation. (laughs) And He brings everything. The Scripture says He holds us firm in His grasp. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. And we're reminded that at every time we come to this table together, this table, this meal, that you bring nothing to. Just think about that for a moment. We're going to have a cookout in the park today. You need to bring some stuff. (laughs) I've told you, bring a dessert. If you want, bring a side. You need to bring stuff when you go to somebody's house. You need to bring stuff when you're visiting someone, when you go to a birthday party. So what am I going to bring? What am I going to bring? And yet God says, no, here's a meal, here's a table, here's a feast where you bring nothing. Because He's already brought everything. He's already paid the penalty for our sin. The Gospel does not say, well, you try really hard and maybe you'll get... 50% of your way to holiness and glory. And Jesus will just make up the other half. No, the Gospel says on your best day and my best day, our best attempts are filthy rags. They stink. We fall short. And we're in utter, utter misery and lostness left to ourselves and our efforts. But God demonstrates His love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And when we come to this table, we're reminded of that, that God has provided, that God is the one who has secured our salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so today, in response to God's Word, it's very fitting that our time of invitation, our time of response, is a time where we come to this table together. Again, we invite you, if you are a professing follower of Jesus Christ, if you have indeed confessed that Christ is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, the Scripture says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord then will be saved. 